This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Over the next couple of hours, we'll bring you news of the week, insights from the magazine, and so much more. And so much, of course, is about the Bloomberg 50 this week. It's that time of year again from finance to politics, tech, and entertainment. These are the folks, Carol, who really shaped 2019, maybe in some unexpected ways. And because we're Bloomberg, you got to be able to measure it. Where else can you talk about Rihanna and the black hole? I'm just saying. And a chicken sandwich. And a chicken sandwich. It's all here. Plus, we've got a growing pushback on stock buybacks and a different kind of housing crisis that asks the question, is homelessness a crime? It's an important story. Mm -hmm. That one really caught my attention. I I loved our conversation with Noah Buhire, in part because, you know, this is the story of our time in many ways because it touches on so many things that are going on in America right now, political, economic, social, and more. But first up, let's talk about our top story this week. NATO, it turned 70, and they were meant to celebrate in London, but turned out to be less of a birthday party, more like a Thanksgiving dinner, Carol, for a large dysfunctional family. I have to say it was interesting just to watch all the photo ops uh, and watch the body language between all of the world leaders. Definitely uh, something worth covering this week. Not all of them got along. There was a few snide remarks made, but in the end, everyone, well, they seem to accept that they're kind of stuck with each other. At least that's according to Mark Champion, who covered the summit outside London. He joins us now. So, Mark, what's the latest on NATO? A lot happened this week. It was. I mean, the the build-up was uh, pretty extraordinary. Um, This was supposed to be just a celebration. It wasn't a real summit. It wasn't a full summit. They do that every two, you know, two to three years. Um, But this one they felt they had to do because it was the 70th. Uh, And they kept it really short because they specifically didn't want to create a big, you know, uh, target for uh, unscripted problems with uh, uh, President Trump, which they've had before. Um, So, and then all of a sudden, in the weeks before, uh, you had the French president uh, Macron coming out and uh, talking about how he wasn't so sure whether uh, you know the rest of uh, NATO allies would go uh, to the defense of Turkey under the Article 5 Collective Defense Clause, which is absolutely at the core of NATO. Uh, it caused a huge uh, blow up. And then, of course, you had Turkey itself, which had uh, you know begun a military operation in Syria uh, against the will of uh, most of the other allies. So you know, people were very apprehensive going in about, you know, this this thing could just blow up. And instead of being a celebration, a demonstration of the union of this, uh, uh, the unity really of, of this alliance, it would be the opposite. Hey, I do want to ask you about Boris Johnson. He was at the summit. He's also the subject of remarks in the magazine this week. And more specifically, his character and his temperament, his anger, who knew? Um, tell us a little bit about that and how that might impact his campaign and possibly his election. So this has been a really extraordinary campaign. They're very short in the UK. One has to remember that, especially if you're familiar with American ones, will go on for more than a year. Uh, They're basically a month long, a month to six weeks, you know, in in effect. Uh, So they're extremely short. Stuff is really packed in. Uh, in all the debates and everything, it happens very, very fast. Uh, we're already towards the last week, but this particular campaign is is really quite extraordinary because you have uh, both parties, you know, making big uh, plays in terms of you know changes in public spending, in budgeting, in fiscal policy, all these sorts of things. Um, and in the end, though, um, it really comes down to uh, trust in the two main candidates. One of them is Boris Johnson, um, and he has always had. Had a, a big issue with trust, and the anger uh, is, you know, a piece of that. Um, and uh, we had this article today, you know, in, in business, this issue uh, in Business mm-hmm. Week, which is really uh, runs through it uh, very uh, carefully, reminds you. Uh, of the times when he's really sort of flown off the handle and people already don't quite trust him because he has a a record. You know, he was fired once for not telling the truth, you know, while he was a cabinet minister. He was fired as a journalist for not telling the truth. And then if you add on top of that the possibility of a a blow up um, because, you know, he doesn't keep his temper, which has happened before, uh, then, you know, that, that is one of the things that the people who are running campaign, his campaign are very concerned about. And they've kept, they kept the campaign on a very tight leash and kept him on a very tight leash. And they've kept his exposure, um, you know, quite limited. 
All right, Mark Champion, we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us from London. A very busy time between mm-hmm. yes. hosting NATO and then obviously this big election. Well, for more on this week's magazine, here he is, Business Week's editor, Joel Weber. The Bloomberg 50, it's the most wonderful time of the year. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is like one of our favorite issues of the year where we recognize the 50 people who really define 2019. And we, do, and we look specifically for things that are measurable because, you know, this is Bloomberg. All industries, I feel like entertainment. Finance, sports. fashion, entertainment, sports. We, we really try to look across everything. And that's what makes this one special. You know, like you could have a, a list of people that are, you know, expected names. Like Warren Buffett could basically be on that list every year. But we're looking for measurable contributions in the year of 2019. So we go back to January and all the way up through now to find out who really sparkled. And even a chicken sandwich. Even a chicken sandwich. <laughs> the, you know, this was the Popeye's chicken sandwich. It broke the internet. Great story. They had a three-month supply sell out in a matter of days. People even got stabbed over it, which was like, you know, the downside of this story. But really, it it speaks to like the ability for brands to like harness things. And a chicken sandwich, of all things, you know, with some extra pickles can really break the Internet. So, you know, we reach out, you know, around the Bloomberg organization. Everybody pitches ideas and so on and so forth. Is there a name that surprised you or that you found was really interesting? This is a big team sport. We pull from all the bureaus around the world and we're looking for leaders and, and business people and CEOs. One of my favorite ones was, remember the the black hole? It's easy to forget all the things that have happened this year. But in science, this is a huge deal, the team that discovered a black hole. So that was one of my favorite ones because, you know, that's it's a a photo of nothingness is effectively what we all looked at for the first time. And it really just marked an incredible scientific achievement. So I'm honored to have them on the list. And that's editor Joel Weber. I love the enthusiasm that Joel has about this issue. It's a labor of love for sure. But what a fun exercise. Exercise to be able to tap into the entire global newsroom of Bloomberg. Right. And a lot of that falls to Brett Began. We're going to hear from him a little bit later on in the show. And a lot of social momentum around this issue as well. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, older women are the beauty industry's next gold mine. This is a fascinating mm-hmm. story. This is Bloomberg. So there's a few stories in the business section that we did want to highlight this week. And the editor of the section, Jim Ellis, is here. Well, any excuse to talk to Jim Ellis. He's (laughs) always on the leading edge. And what's interesting is I want to start with Chanel because obviously an incredibly well-known brand. And you actually start this story with sort of this portrait of Paris. Mm. uh, And they're going after a market where many have failed. Right. I mean, basically, um, we we start out the story looking at – uh, Chanel's boutique on the Place de Vendôme in Paris, and it's facing all these other sort of well-known names and watches like Rolex and Puget, and um, and we're and and there's Chanel, which is normally thought of as a a female-centered brand that's big in you know real fashion and also in you know fragrance and um, you, know, you think of the blazers and the purses, but you don't really think about watches as much, even though they've been in the watch business. Well, now they've decided to make a really big push into it. Now that's tricky simply because the brand is really associated with a very feminine um, sort of fashion orientation, and that's not where the biggest watch companies are. The biggest watch companies are things that you know men buy, and it's a male-focused right. kind of business. And um, you know, this is a tough way for these uh, you know Chanel people to sort of weasel, you know, shoulder their way in. So, is it all about going after men specifically, or men and women? Are they all in on watches? It's it's all in. I mean, they started out with a watch that's been successful called the J Twelve. And it's a, it's a unisex watch. Yeah. And I mean, so it, it's sized and styled in a way that it looks good on both men and women. And um, has it, it done well? It has done well. However, you know, it's just the beginning because the thing is that other companies have had, you know, a hundred years or a couple of hundred years in watches. And this is definitely a hundred year, 110 year old brand, right. but it's one that's been associated with fashion. And among true watch aficionados, the notion of a fashion watch is sort of a, that's not a compliment. Yeah. I mean, watches are such a funny little corner mm. of the market. I mean, we've talked a lot about yeah. the watch trade, as it were, with Chris Rouser, who yeah. runs the Pursuit section, who I imagine was somehow consulted uh, in, <laughs> in all of this. But, you know, I do wonder why, you know, not to be too cynical about Chanel, but like, 
What makes them so special? You well, know, that they can figure this out. Wait a minute, when Jason. Else. Chanel is special. Okay. <laughs> Let's just no, no, do that, they, but go they, ahead. They have been, um, you know, that's something that they've had to, you know, sort of contend with among the, the inside watch crowd. And they've been um, not just people who wanted to sell watches, but they wanted to make better watches. Right. And so they have invested in um, making their own movements, which is the, the real hard part of watchmaking. Not just putting a quartz movement on something, but instead saying, you know, they're going to have uh, you know mechanical, you know, sort of specialists in Switzerland who are actually making their watches. They also own, uh, you know, minority o- ownership in very expensive Swiss watch companies, and so they actually know mm. how to make watches. And it's been, um, you know, it, it's been shown. They won the um, uh, what sort of the Oscars of watches um, in Geneva the last two years for best women's watch. And um, and so one of them was extremely technical. So they're you know they have the product. The issue is, can you break into something that people have typically thought of as being sort of controlled by a few uh, right. other companies, particularly at a price point that a luxury company needs to charge? Well, I do think there's a lot of stuff going on, like LVMH buying Tiffany, and they were right. doing that to really get into the jewelry space and so on and so forth. So I do think that there's a reemphasis, whether it's on jewelry or watches, and yeah. I think that's a market that can be continue to be tapped. I think upscale brands and upscale brands are continually looking for new ways to you know get growth. Right. And if you're not in some segment that you know sort of ties into the high priced world, you try to get into it. So Chanel, okay, so going after watches big time. They already have a cosmetics line. I don't know if they have been looking into tapping <laughs> the elderly consumer market, but if you go to Japan, apparently cosmetics for the elderly that's a that's a thing. This it's was a, a wait what story for me. I have to say, I did not see this one coming. Tell us what's going on. Well, it's um, you know we all know that Japan is the oldest you know has the oldest populace of any country right now, and so it, it, it wasn't a, 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 a big stretch for consumer product companies to say, oh, the elderly, there may be a good market. But normally, when you think about cosmetics, it's aimed at young. Right. You sort of use young people as in all your advertising, and you sort of target everything. Thing about looking like you're 20 with skin of 20-year-olds. And instead, in Japan, where almost half the women now are over 50, and by— um, I love that over 50 is elderly. I'm just well, going to put well, that out but, there, but okay. But in another you know, 15, 20 years, more than half will be over 60. Yeah, I mean, this no. is a really, really aging population. And so all of a sudden, people have said— they shouldn't be ignored. Right. Mm-hmm. That we there's money here. There's an affluent population too. And so therefore if we pump products aimed at that market, we can sell a lot more. And so companies are sort of coming out with lines that look at that. So Shiseido, um, Polo Orbis, Kose, um, you know, they're doing that. And they're also using older influencers as well. Well, that was one of the things that really jumped out at me is, you know, in the same issue where we are celebrating rightly in the Bloomberg 50, Kylie Jenner yeah. right, uh, at yeah. the ripe old age of 22 with her line that she now does a deal with Cody. Here we have throwback to, you know, my era, Kate Moss, Kate you know, Moss. 45 years old, 45 years old as which, a spokesperson, as a spokesperson for yeah. Kose. And, um, you know, and that is, you know, 45, while it seems young to me, is not young in that world. And so therefore, what they're saying is that, you know, we are talking about your skin, more mature skin. And one of the really interesting things in the story is that, um, Polar Orbis, which is one of the biggest cosmetics companies in Japan, is using uh, one of its um, um, uh, influencers is a woman who's the world's oldest uh, beauty consultant. She's 99 years old. Wow. She works for Polar Orbis, and she's been sort of helping women with their skin for, for well, forever. And um, it was really interesting to see that, um, you know, there are all sorts of tricks that tricks or strategies that people use when they're dealing with older customers. It means that the bottles have to have larger text so that they can, um, you know, sort of it doesn't strain your eyes as much. It also means that you use wax on some of the eye products because it then doesn't hurt the thinning skin. And um, Shiseido is even selling combs, special combs that have little dots of black dye on the end of the teeth to go for your um, for the roots of the hair that's turning gray. I mean, there's all sorts of things that people are using now to say, okay, I understand that you're aging, but you can still be your you know best person, you look your best way, and we're going to help you with that. 
And thank you. Spend money with my company. That's Jim Ellis, the editor of the business section. Two great stories about companies and industries looking to really kind of, you know, create more revenue lines. For Chanel, of course, it's about high-end watches, but for cosmetics, uh, that industry going after an older population. Right. And the demographics underneath this whole trend, fascinating. Obviously, Japan is something of a test case, given how they have that aging population. But you have to think Europe is next and then... We're getting older here in the United States as well. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, an experiment in Tennessee to offer free tuition. Well, it boosted enrollment, but dropout rates still remain high. Yeah, no one size fits all Mm -hmm. going on here when it comes to solving that conundrum of higher education. This is Bloomberg. Several presidential candidates have proposals to defray the cost of higher education. But Jason, I think it's safe to say one size does not fit all. Well, I think it's also fair to say you and I both have teenagers. This is front of mind for Mm -hmm. so many parents across the country and for so many would-be students, the affordability of higher education, uh, it is, I think the technical term is bananas, Bananas the cost of higher education. Reed Pickert joins us from Washington, D.C. with the story. Take us to Tennessee. Now think about Tennessee. So they were the first state to implement a statewide free tuition program for every high school graduating senior. And they could go to community college or technical college completely for free. That started in 2014. But it started as an economic program. So the idea was that Tennessee took a look around its workforce and realized with an increasingly skilled economy and an advancing economy that they weren't going to have enough skilled workers. So as a result, they came up with Tennessee Promise and a complimentary program for adults called Tennessee Reconnect that works towards getting Tennesseans to have a post-secondary education. So whether that's a technical certificate or a community college degree or whatever it may be. And the results have been really promising. You've seen college-going rates increase. You've seen enrollment in community colleges increase. You've seen graduation rates at community colleges improve. But at the same time, the dropout rates, while improving, still could use a little bit of improvement. It's almost 50% of students are dropping out after three years using the program. Well, Reed, talk to us, because you actually introduced us to one student in particular, and I do feel like, based on your reporting, that if you're a low-income student, this is a tougher trek for you. It's a tougher trek, and being a low-income student in Tennessee or any other state mm-hmm. in America is, is a tougher trek. But the thing about this program is that it's a last-dollar scholarship. So it means that it covers the cost of tuition that federal Pell Grants don't cover or other state aid doesn't cover. So for students who are low-income and perhaps would already have the majority of their college paid for um, from through federal Pell Grants, you know, they're getting a smaller proportion of their tuition paid for by this program versus um, students who earn or come from families with a bit of a higher income. So the idea is that, you know, you look at these dropout rates and tuition's not a factor, but the other costs of college that this, that a financial aid program doesn't address, like transportation or housing or the cost of books are really, you know, weighing on these low-income students. What has been learned in Tennessee that can and cannot be applicable to other states? So so for Tennessee, it has its own program. It was the, the first to offer to all students of that were graduating from high school. But other states have their own versions of programs. Some have residency requirements, like New York requires you to live in the state after you receive the aid. Um, other states offer it for four-year education, while some offer it for two or for specific areas or income brackets. But I I guess what the lesson that I have heard from um, experts in this area is that a one-size-fits-all approach is really challenging, especially in something like higher education, where each state is different and each state has come up with their own program to serve to serve them. Um, so looking at it from a one-size-fits-all approach is, is really challenging. Um, but that, that is different than having a federal framework and then giving states a little more wiggle room to decide what's best for themselves. Well, and Reed, as Carol pointed out, I mean, it becomes sort of complicated and difficult 
economically for a lot of the students, mm-hmm. especially in the lower income brackets, because they may need to work to support themselves, to support their family for all hosts of reasons. And part of it is the money, but part of it is the way that even the classes are structured and the and the educational offerings are structured. Is there any sort of creativity being applied to that part of the equation? Oh, absolutely. So community colleges are going out of their way to make themselves available to students. They're holding office hours outside of with professors outside of normal hours. They're offering night classes. They're offering weekend classes. They're doing everything that they can. The, the problem is that the, the, the Promise program requires students to go to school full time. It requires them to take a full class load. And in the case of a student who's working 40 hours a week, that can seem like a lot. But but it makes sense in a lot of ways because, you know, in general, dropout rates tend to be better when students are going to school full time than when they're going part time. Mm. Well, and what's interesting, and I think states are dealing with this a lot and employers within states is that they need workers and they need workers with the right skills. So um, that's at play here as well. Correct. Correct. And you're seeing it you're seeing it work. I mean, since the program was announced in 2014 and then implemented for the first group in 2015. And looking at the unemployment rate since 2014, it's half of what it was. The median household income has reached nearly 30% of what it was. And that's Reed Pickard. Such a smart story. A look inside what's going on in Tennessee. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it reminds me of something we talk about with people like Peter Coy all the time, that the data can tell you one thing, but real life tends to intervene when you're trying to solve what seem to be intractable problems. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, the people who defined 2019. That's right. We're talking about the Bloomberg 50. We're going to take you inside that list. This is Bloomberg. So the magazine this week is about the Bloomberg 50, the people in business, entertainment, finance, politics, and science and technology whose 2019 accomplishments merit recognition, applause, so much more. Jason, this is a cool list. We love this every year. We get to be a part of it. Yes. The big event that's happening in Looking New York City next week. But the man who's behind it all, <laughs> uh, who's really at the crux of it, our partner in crime and <laughs> the impresario, as it were, uh, Brett Began, here with us in New York City. This is such a cool list. But remind us how it gets put together. Well, it's actually, it's amazing. Basically, I send an email to the entire company and I say, hey, who's on your radar? Or who might be on your radar later this year? So we're looking sometimes for... Because this starts months ago. Yeah. Yes. We start this in like April. Oh Um, my God. Here we are in... I don't even remember what month it it's is December. right now. It's December. December. <laughs> it's holidays. Um, yeah, we started this a long time ago. And you know what we say is basically in your areas of expertise, who are the people that are doing sort of provably well this year that the general lay reader or person out there might not know about? So we try to mix that with people that are a little bit more famous, right? Because we want them on the list too. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so it starts months and months and months ago. And what I do is basically field the submissions and then make a determination about who are the most interesting of these people. Well, and I'm glad you said provable because that's a yeah. very Bloomberg thing, yes. right? It's not data. totally provable. subjective. <laughs> like this that. is applying data yeah. and everybody essentially with their nominations has to come armed with a metric right. of some sort. That's exactly right. So to get on the list, it's not really a lifetime achievement award. And there's many, many, many people that I want to put on this list every year, but they don't really have a date, any data or a metric to sort of prove Um, why we should include them. So a lot of it is sort of looking at the numbers, looking at the figures and saying, okay, they did have a great year and we can actually show this through a stock price going up or an acquisition or a million other ways we try to measure it. Brett, I'm always curious about the kind of debates that you guys have as you're discussing all of these names because I'm sure people are like, this name has to be on this list. And you're like, no, it doesn't have to be on this list. There is a lot of that. There are a lot of people you look at and say, hey, this person, of course, is going to be on the list. And every year I think, oh, this person's definitely going to be on the list. And then we get to the end and they wind up not on it. Um, And that sort of happens because we decide either that the metric isn't strong enough, that it wasn't basically important enough. That's the other thing that happens. A lot of people have metrics, but you sort of look at the how business shapes up and you say, actually, you know, if you think about it, this doesn't really merit inclusion. So is there anybody this year of the Bloomberg 50 that a lot of people were like, okay, this person, no doubt about it, has to be on the list? You know, one person that we said that about... um, 
that actually did wind up on the list <laughs> this year is like Kylie Jenner. Yeah. Ah, yeah. Right. So the y- world's youngest Gen Z's first uh, billionaire. And that was someone who pretty early on, we said, you know, like there's a really good chance she'll be on the list. And she is, in fact, on the list. And Rihanna is the other person but, that we thought early on. Well, go back to Kylie. <laughs> go back to Kylie for a second. Thing. Yeah, because yes. I feel yeah. like she probably had a very strong case earlier in the year. Yeah. And then, then just yeah. a few weeks ago, she capstones it, That's as right. it were, right. with this huge deal. Yeah, six hundred right? million dollar deal with Cody, which actually increased um, the valuation of the company from about one point one to about one one point two. And the way we measure is that she owns, you know, the, uh, basically makes her a billionaire because of that because of the original well, deal. So, and I love like yeah. the more we find out about that story. Of course, she owns the bulk of the company, right? But then yes. mom, right? Mom owns the, <laughs> mom owns the rest. Yeah, <laughs> she's a piece of everything. Yeah, and she, it's an amazing. I mean, she's 22. I know to be a billionaire at 22. Granted, had a you know had a little help, right? Was on a little bit of an assist, jogging start, a jogging <laughs> start, a huge yeah. platform, yeah, absolutely. But still, pretty amazing. Um, she knows that essentially, if she puts something on her Instagram account, which has 150 million yeah. plus followers, that that people are going to do it. They're going to buy that product. They're going to go to the Ulto or Cody and go buy that product. So she has an amazing power. She's an incredible influencer. She's probably one of the most important people in terms of determining fashion and style in this country. All right. So talk to us about Rihanna because we can't get too far away (laughs) from that. I mean, that's a name that really does stand out from a lot of her peers in a lot of ways. And also because of a tie-up that yeah. she has in yep. the broader business world. L- LVMH, yeah. And, you know, Fenty is her brand. It started, you know, lot, basically they did $560 million worth of makeup sales. And LVMH said, hmm, this, this seems to be working. <laughs> caught my attention. Uh, caught our attention here. Uh, and her big thing with that was they, she offered 40 shades, which had never really been done before. And now everybody offers 40 shades, really every major company. So she's now doing clothing. Yeah. Which makes total sense. And in doing so, she became a number of firsts. She's really the, the uh, first woman to create an original fashion brand at right. LVMH among many, many other accolades this year. So she was a, she was also pretty much a shoe in. Yeah. So is there a name uh, on the list that might surprise people that's not necessarily a household name like Kylie Jenner or Rihanna? Yeah, there are a lot of them actually. And that's kind of what makes the list fun is that for every Kylie or, or Rihanna, there's actually a lot of people on here that you've probably never heard of. Um, you know, someone like Ritesh Agarwal, to me, is a really, really mm-hmm. interesting story. So he's a 19-year-old. He decides to travel around India as a budget traveler and says, this is terrible. You know, all these hotels have roaches and it's foam blocks for mattresses. What if I were to take hotels that are 150 rooms or smaller and sort of standardize? So have hot water in the showers, have actual uh, mattresses, right? Eliminate the bugs in the room. So said, okay, I'll give this a shot. He's 26 now. He's worth more than a billion dollars. His Oyo uh, hotel chain is adding 70 to 80 hotels a day, right? which is absolutely insane. And they are by room now the number two uh, hotel in the world and are poised to overtake Marriott pretty much early next year. So that story I found amazing. The most amazing little tidbit in there is that the way they use data and analytics to try to figure out what works. And they found that if they put portraits of Marilyn Monroe (laughs) in the rooms, that people consider those hotels now boutique. And that actually increases increases revenue per available room 10 to 11% per hotel. Wow. (laughs) You know, one, it's not always just single people. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk a little bit because it's one of our favorite storylines of the year. U.S. Women's National Team. Yes. Uh, A shoe in to some extent on the list, in part because this was much more than just winning the World Cup. So their their metric actually is that the number of people that watched set records for any soccer game, not just, you know, for for, uh, women playing, uh, for men, for women. Um, But they're also on the list because of their pay equity battle. And, um, you know, they have uh, they're now basically this is going to come to trial next year. And they are they're one of the groups on there that is fighting very hard for pay equity. And their argument is a pretty you know good one, which is that. Um, they actually play in more, more games. They've won four World Cups. Um, don't we deserve a little bit more here? And we've, we're seeing actually elsewhere in the world that this is happening. Australia actually just granted their women's team the same amount of money as their men's team. I also always wonder on this list when you guys think about something that 
business week covers so well, and that is big business corporate stories or business trends. Who among the business community was worth being on this list this year? Huh, that's a great question. Um, you know, somebody that I uh, love is Ethan Brown. Yeah. Right. If you look at yeah. business this year, really hard to overlook the world of fake meat. Right. Um, Beyond Meat is his company. Uh, you've got, you know, Impossible. And now you've got pretty much every other company doing this well. But their stock price up about 200% um, since it launched this year. It was a successful huge, IPO. Huge, huge, right. huge IPO. Um, and it's just a space that is going to be worth so like hundreds of billions of dollars in the coming years. So he was kind of a shoe in for that. Um, that's just also an area that we've covered, you know, at, at length. Kevin Mayer. Um, over at Disney with the launch of Disney Plus. Yeah. I mean, signing up nearly 10 million people, you know, almost right away. And one of the themes throughout this list is you see we have Kevin Mayer on the list. Um, yeah, also on the list is Kevin Feige of Marvel. Um, obviously, Marvel, Avengers, Endgame this year became the most successful movie of all time. $2.8 billion in ticket sales. Yeah, a couple of Kevins uh, really running the show over yeah, at Disney. Exactly. And then you have people, you know, like Ann Sarnoff at Warner Brothers, yeah. right, who's charged with basically making HBO Max work. So you, you're seeing a ton in the streaming world this year. A lot of people on the list basically really responsible for reshaping how we watch TV. That's Brett Began. He's the editor of the Bloomberg 50. So he's responsible for talking to everyone around the Bloomberg organization to help come up with this list, the Bloomberg 50. Well, and it starts months and months yeah. and months in advance. It becomes this massive project with people pitching and him asking for more information because mm -hmm. what's at the heart of all this is you got to prove it. So you can't just say, yeah, this is a really great guy. You've got to be able to say this person grew market share or made a massive acquisition. It's got to be or, measurable to some extent, right? Right. Or in the case of Kylie Jenner, you know, sort of had it two ways in the sense of becoming a billionaire and then doing this massive deal with Cody that I, I think sealed her uh, place on the Bloomberg family. Right. Or in the case of a chicken sandwich, running out of buns. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and lines, you know, for people standing in lines to get... A sandwich. Well, and one of the most fun things about Love the that. Bloomberg 50 every year is that we get to co-host the mm -hmm. big event. It's coming up early next week here in New York City. We're going to be literally on the red carpet or, or just adjacent to it. We'll right. be on the red carpet at some point. Or we'll you will, nearby. at least. We'll be nearby. We'll both be on it. We'll be interviewing uh, a number of the folks who made the list, some other notable folks who will be stopping by. Uh, it's a great event. It's very funny yes. uh, in a lot of ways and we get to honor uh, all these folks. Bottom line, what it is, it's 50 people that you need to know about because they're doing things already and they're going to continue doing things uh, in the coming year. So it's really important to know who they are. Well, and one of my favorite parts of it is the ones to watch. We get to honor yeah. them as well. And you think about our buddy Paul Rabel. He was one to watch last week and Lo and behold, he went and created a massive new professional league. Well, that wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Plenty in our next hour, including a pushback on the C-suite pumping up their pay with buybacks. That is a really good story. Plus, Soros. <laughs> yep, we're talking about George Soros and his fund. Sort of a different take these days. He used to be one of the biggest risk takers out there. Now, his fund? more conservative. The times, they certainly are changing. This is Bloomberg. Hello, I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. Plenty ahead for you in this hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. We're going to talk a little bit more about the Bloomberg 50. That's right. Folks you need to know about in entertainment, business, politics, finance, science, and technology. That's all to come. Plus, we take a look at a different kind of housing crisis. We ask the question, is homelessness a crime? That is an issue, Carol, that may actually come before the Supreme Court before too long and may help define or dictate how America deals with this huge public crisis. Plus, Vodafone, it's looking at a greener take on the smartphone. But first, Carol? Story in the finance section of the magazine this week about Soros fund management. And yes, we mean that, of course, of longtime investor George Soros. Yeah, that George Soros, mm -hmm. uh, arguably <laughs> one of the world's best known investors. But his namesake fund, not the same without mm -hmm. him or his family Lots directly involved. Uh, Dawn Fitzpatrick, she's the CIO. Kathy Burton has the story of her tenure so far hasn't been awesome, to use a technical term. <laughs> Everything is not awesome. <laughs> Everything is not awesome. No, it has not. Uh, they've struggled uh, 
pretty mightily with performance over the past three years since Dawn started in 2017. And remind us who she is, where she came from, and how she got to this job. She came from UBS. Uh, she ran the hedge fund business there, as well as the equities businesses and some other uh, businesses at the asset management part of uh, U- of UBS. And uh, she was chosen to run this new Soros Fund Management, which is uh, managing the money for the foundation, not for George and his family. Well, that's it. Take a step back, because I feel like there was a long period where George Soros could only do really smart things in terms of investments, right? And if you could work there, it was a really cool thing. So remind us of his kind of past. Sure. So as you said, it used to be the major best performing hedge fund in the world. And George sat on top of it. He had great traders. They made tons of money. And then in 2017, he transferred most of his wealth to his foundation. Mm -hmm. And that meant the foundation was no longer managing money for George, whipping it around. They had to be much more conservative because they didn't want to lose money. They just have to ensure that they can fund all their their projects every year. And that's such a key point, because if you go back to the culture and the ethos of the original Soros, it was big, big bets. I mean, huge bets Mm -hmm. that paid off in, in many cases, unbelievably, but swinging for the fences in a lot of ways, right? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. They made so many big bets. The biggest, most famous one was uh, George betting against the pound, George and Stan Druckenmiller betting against the pound in 1992. They made a billion dollars on that bet, and they bet $10 billion. It's like amazing. To make right. that. Yeah. 10 yeah. million. $10 billion on that bet. Wow. And they wanted to bet 15. They just couldn't get it done. All right. So that's where George Soros is. So fast forward. And let's be fair, like the hedge fund world has changed dramatically. And we've seen a lot of hedge funds either shut down or folks take the money, you know, kind of give it back to investors and just kind of have their own family offices, right? I mean, the world has changed dramatically. Yes, it's much harder to make money. And now this isn't a hedge fund. It's been a family office for several years now. Um, But now it even has to be more conservative because of the foundation, because it's the foundation's money. And that's where Dawn Fitzpatrick comes in. And that's exactly (laughs) where she comes in. So what has she been doing? Because your story really reads well. I mean, she's gotten rid of a lot of managers. She's done a lot of big things already. Yes, she got rid of a lot of external managers because, um, for one, they weren't making a lot of money. Right. And for two, she wanted to have more control of the capital. She wanted to be able to, if there is a market dislocation, she says she wants to be able to pounce on that. What does this tell us about almost like this generation of managers? Yes, we have seen that that change going on in other parts of the industry. We have people who've left hedge funds because the clients have said, hey, you have so much of your own money in here and you're managing it like it's your money and you're too conservative. Right. So we see that a lot. There is this transition of people who are getting ready to retire and, as you say, have different needs. And and that is changing the industry a lot. Well, and in terms of changes, I love how this story kind of kicks off that if you kind of want a job to go work with Dawn, right, you can maybe get it through a podcast, or at least they promoted getting a job on a podcast. It was, it's kind of unheard of, right, it, it was, in the past. It was very surprising. People said to me that they were very surprised when they heard about that or well, saw that. Well, tell us what happened. Um, that uh, Dawn came in and had this interview with, with Ted Seides, a, a old hedge fund hand, and and she wanted the message out there that, that they were looking for talent. And it seemed very unusual that Soros Fund Management would ever need to advertise. This would have been a place that years ago, people would have murdered other people to like get, get job. a job or even just get an interview um, at Soros. So it's amazing uh, how times have changed. So so what happens next? Like, is this something where Don Fitzpatrick just sort of kind of weathers this storm and, and goes on? What was the sense you got from talking to her? Uh The sense from her is that the board wants to look at her performance over five or seven years. So, and also I think that now that uh, George is not involved in the money management, as long as she can more or less make the the billion dollars that they need to spend every year, um, she'll have the backing of the board. Has she done it so far? How long has she been there? She has been there uh, since April 2017, so almost three years. 
and she didn't do it last year. She's not. She's maybe going to do it this year. And uh, the first year was there. They had a little surplus. So net net, they're probably just in line over those three years. And that's Kathy Burton. She knows all. All about hedge funds, literally wrote the book on it, Hedge Hunters, back in the day where she profiled people Mm -hmm. like George Soros and really took stock of the industry then, looked ahead, and man, the industry's changed now. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, the Supreme Court is considering hearing a case that could make homelessness a crime. This is Bloomberg. Homelessness, you see it in a lot of major cities, especially where the cost of housing has become unaffordable for so many. Jason, a current court case that could create a different kind of housing crisis. It feels like the government, businesses, people, Mm -hmm. just human beings, uh, residents of major cities especially, are starting to look at this problem as much more complex than we did for a long time. Noah Buhayer joins us from Seattle with the latest on this case and what it may mean for what certainly has become a crisis. So tell us about this case to start. Yeah, it's a, it's a case that started about a decade ago in, in Boise, uh, Idaho. And um, six uh, uh, homeless uh, people brought a case against the city basically saying that the, um, the local ban on, on camping in public places was unconstitutional, that it represented cruel and unusual punishment because um, basically there was no place for them to go. There weren't enough spaces and and shelters. um, And uh, effectively, they were being uh, penalized uh, for being homeless, which is something you can't do under the law. This is is wild, and I think it could change dramatically based on your reporting in this court case of how we think about housing, because it really gets to, right, Noah, the idea that housing is a basic right. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a larger question that looms over this case. It's the the legal issue is much narrower. But uh, just to complete the story, uh, uh, the Boise won in the, in the, at the district court level, but then it was appealed to the Ninth Circuit, um, which covers you know a giant swath of the U.S. West from Alaska to Arizona, and the appellate court found um, in the favor of. Uh, the the homeless folks. So as a result, you have a ruling out there right now that um, says that these sorts of bans on public camping are unconstitutional, and it's it's a big deal because it it it's a ruling that goes far beyond Boise. Now it's something that matters to cities like Los Angeles and Seattle, and uh, it's created a, a lot of discussion in um, cities throughout the West about how. Uh, they can tackle this uh, giant problem of homelessness. Well, and in your story, Noah, you do talk about some of what various cities have done. Some of those cities you mentioned have done to try and combat this, especially at a time where if you talk to people Mm -hmm. in Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle, they talk about even anecdotally just this massive rise in homelessness, which obviously has something to do a large uh, part to do with the affordability of housing. What have we seen those individual cities do to try and combat this so far? What you've seen broadly on a national level is an uptick in these laws that, that criminalize, you know, camping or sleeping in, in, in public. Now, this the the Ninth Circuit decision really really calls some of those into question, and it's it's made a lot of cities. Um, uh, back away from from those bans. Um, the question, though, long term, like the bigger question that looms over this case is how are you going to solve homelessness? Like, think a lot of people in the in the West and across the country recognize that it's a problem, but there's a very robust and active debate about what you do about it. And you know, on well, the one side, the folks who um, are arguing on on behalf of of the homeless folks from Boise, they say that criminalizing people for sleeping on the streets when they have no other alternative is really counterproductive. Uh, There are tons of studies out there that show that if you take uh, the cost of policing, emergency room visits, and other um, costs on society into account, it's a lot less cost effective to basically uh, approach uh, chronic homelessness that way. It's much better to get people a house and then start working on mental health issues or substance right. abuse issues. All right. So, no, there's this Ninth um, Circuit Court decision. The thing at issue here is whether or not this is going to go all the way to the Supreme Court, correct? Right. So that could be decided as soon 
soon as this month, um, there was a request for review that um, a legal team representing Boise, including um, Ted Olson of Bush v. v Gore fame, um, filed in, uh, in August or September, I believe. And the Supreme Court um, could decide as soon as this month whether they're going to hear that review. And what ultimately are people doing or in the interim? You know, you mentioned that some cities and, and municipalities and states are trying to, to sort of figure this out in the context of this decision. Uh, what could potentially happen? Are we talking about more shelters? Are we talking about more affordable housing that uh, cities or states or the federal government would force to be built? What are the potential solutions here? I think the reality on the ground right now is there's a lot of uncertainty and cities are approaching it in different ways because they don't want to run afoul of the Ninth Circuit's decision. They don't uh, want to be sued and told, and, you know, and have a court find that their their ban is unconstitutional and they, they need to pay damages to, to um, people who bring those suits. So um, on, the, on a very basic level, you're, you're seeing um, a questioning and a rethinking of how they approach these particular bans. Apart from that, I mean, it's not like uh, places that have these bans weren't working on homelessness to begin right. with. I, there's a lot of work underway. Um, but the proponents of um, the Ninth Circuit's decision uh, basically say that it's an opportunity for cities to think about other ways of solving their crisis, which, as you said, it's a complex issue. It, it goes directly to housing affordability in a lot of these places. And there are other tools in the toolkit, um, these advocates say, for, for cities to deal with this. They can relax zoning rules so you can build um, more and cheaper apartments through um, cities where there's a lot of demand for housing. Uh, you can increase subsidies so that people can, you know, afford to live in places that have um, where the rents have gone up. And it's interesting too when you think about what it will mean nationally. You know, all of a sudden, mm -hmm. or not all of a sudden, but we're in a situation where these cities that are at the core of the economy in many ways, especially yeah. when you think about the importance of Los Angeles, Seattle, uh, San Francisco out there in the West, Las Vegas being another, uh, you know, so much innovation, so much business and growth and economic growth has happened there, but it obviously has come at a cost. I think you see it right there in your backyard right now. Right. I mean, I think there's a pretty wide acceptance now that booming economies are um, part of the problem here. You don't have the sort of runaway growth in homeless populations uh, without, uh, you know, in Seattle, a thriving tech scene where right. you've seen the population grow by 20 percent in, in a short number of years. Uh, same for L.A., where rents have gone up just a dramatic amount because um, the city uh, has chronically underbuilt for its population growth. That's Noah Buhire. And of course, Jason, joining us from Seattle, where we know homelessness is a really big problem. We see this in these major cities where there's been a lot of development. It's gotten so expensive to live there. And as a result, homelessness is on the rise. Well, and especially when you think about the western part of the United States, this is mm -hmm. a defining issue of our time. And you do wonder whether this will be a defining case for that issue. Yeah, asking a very important question if housing is a basic human right. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up after fur and flight shaming, phone shaming, Carol, maybe next. It's all about a greener environment. This is Bloomberg. A green smartphone that you can repair yourself. Not science fiction, apparently, Jason Kelly. I love this idea Me because too. I am completely perplexed by my mobile phone. And you never open it up and check it out inside, do even you? Even <laughs> more upset about how much I have to pay to get it fixed when yeah. it breaks. Stefan Nicola joins us from Berlin. He's got the answer to some extent. It's called the Fairphone. What's going on? Well, the Fairphone is, uh, yeah, the sustainable answer to uh, all the other smartphones out there. Um, smartphones in general are, are pretty, uh, pretty bad when it comes to sustainability. Uh, they are, um, you know, built in questionable uh, environments. Uh, they're using uh, metals and minerals mined in war zones, and it's basically impossible to uh, recycle them um, or repair them. Um, meaning, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll often get tossed, and, and that's not a good thing, as we all know. 
All right. So, Stefan, I'm thinking that in this moment and movement, if you will, where I feel like folks are looking for greener solutions to everything, I'm curious why this hasn't happened sooner or taken off more. Tell us about, kind of put it in perspective, because we sell, what, more than a billion smartphones kind of around the world, yet this is just a small part of the market. Yes, uh, the Fairphone is still a niche product. Last year alone, uh, 1.45 billion smartphones were sold around the world. And uh, the Fairphone has a modest target of selling 150,000 models uh, next year. Um, however, um, you know, these products are catching on. The Fairphone is special because it sources um, sustainable uh, minerals uh, from fair, fair trade sources and from places uh, where they ensure that there's no child labor or uh, armed conflicts involved. It's using recycled plastics. And you can uh, very easily take this phone out and, and uh, open it up and repair it yourself for a fraction of the cost, uh, um, you know, getting your iPhone or Samsung Galaxy uh, repaired. That alone blows my mind. Yeah, right? so let's talk about that specific <laughs> element to it because that it was comes the with thing a screwdriver, that right? really jumped out at me. Exactly. I mean, so how did they make something that one can actually fix oneself? Yeah, so basically uh, um, they uh, had the problem, which is, you know, when you uh, have your iPhone uh, um, broke, when your iPhone's broken and you want to repair it yourself, that's basically impossible. Not only uh, will you not be able to open it, but also you'll void the warranty if you do it. So they try to come up with an entirely new modular design that makes that possible. You know, uh, the, the phone ships uh, with a tiny screwdriver that you can use to open uh, the device and, and very simply, very easily uh, replace seven key components from the screen that we all know breaks easily uh, to the camera to uh, the battery to all kinds of key components that usually you, you won't see or touch in other smartphones. So, Stefan, I think everybody who's listening and watching uh, this interview wants to know, okay, Jason's got two smartphones here. I've got one. We've got pretty probably close to the latest and greatest models that are out there. Um, so how does this compare, this green smartphone, compared to kind of the smartphones we've all gotten used to? Of course, it doesn't compare when it comes to the you know tech specs with the latest iPhone or the uh, flagship uh, Samsung Galaxy. It's a, it's a step behind. It's, it's a, a decent mid-level phone. Um, at a, a price that's slightly higher than mid-level, it, it said it, it will cost you 450 euros, um, but that uh, you know is 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 a bit higher than comparable phones. Um, the screen is uh, a decent screen that you know you would have seen maybe a year ago in in, in other models. Um, but the battery gets you through the day, um, and the processor is um, yeah also maybe from a phone that you would have uh, bought brand new last year. But all in all, it's, it, it can get you anywhere. It can do all the things you need. Um, and you have a sustainable alternative mm -hmm. if that's what you're looking for. Well, and what I find so interesting about this story, Stefan, is this notion that while this phone has been hanging around for a while and people have essentially been ignoring it from a broad <laughs> perspective, we are in this moment right now where people seem to be willing to pay up. Yep. People seem much more concerned about where their stuff comes from. How much will they be able to take advantage of this moment? Yeah, exactly. That, that's the, the whole the big difference right now. Um, the Fairphone 3, that's, that's uh, how the phone is called. Uh, and that, that already suggests that there was a Fairphone 1 and a Fairphone 2. Right. Um, that, that was introduced uh, years ago. And they didn't sell that much of those, but they did sell them to a, a very committed community. And now um, things are changing, as you, as you said. Um, consumers are becoming more aware uh, of the sustainability in their products. And now Vodafone, Europe's biggest wireless carrier, has agreed to sell the smartphone in five of its key European markets, where it has 80 million subscribers in total. So that's a big sales push for the Fairphone, and it gets the phone out in front of the consumer much more than it used to be. I mean, that's another big difference, right? That they finally have one of the biggest wireless carriers out there. I think they're the fourth biggest actually supporting them, right? That could be a game changer for them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Vodafone is a key player in Europe. 
uh, um, it has so many uh, millions of, of wireless subscribers across uh, the continent. And of course, it has physical shops and stores where you can uh, uh, see the Fairphone and touch it and, and really you know, see that there and feel that there is a, a sustainable alternative out there and, and one that uh, may get you through the day as well. Right. Well, and what's so interesting is ultimately this is like going to be about <laughs> I, do like, I do like the idea of at least having the option to fix it myself but what's interesting Stefan is this notion that ultimately you have to get the big phone makers behind it because a for avail- availability and distribution but also because their business model to date has really been built on sell a phone it wears out we'll sell you another phone I mean this has been a volume game for a, to a large extent Yes, it has. And of course, the industry uh, is still playing that game. Now, there's pressure, rising pressure, I'd say, on the industry to change that game somewhat, to change the rules a bit and, and get, you know, leave that buy and toss model uh, every year, a new smartphone or every two years at the latest. And, and that, you know, that model is seriously coming under pressure. So, uh, you know, that's also a move by Vodafone to have an alternative in its portfolio and, and show that it's, you know, beginning to tackle some of those issues. Yeah, this whole idea of buy and toss, right, uh, is just, I think we've got to change it, or, or what they call commercial electronic sustainability, yeah. to be a little bit more official. Um, Stefan, thank you so much. Great story. Thank you. Good job. Bye. Great job. Really well told. Good. Thank you. Thanks for being patient with us. Love the concept. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Take care. We'll see you next time. So stocks often move higher on news of a buyback, and there are immediate benefits to shareholders, especially those on the inside, Jason. Well, that is Mm. the key point to this. They've always been seen to be good for shareholders, at least academically, but this is more complicated maybe than folks have thought about, and the SEC is thinking about it now more, at least one commissioner. Peter Coy is here with us with the inside scoop. This is really fascinating because buybacks – They've been all the rage. They sure have. Buybacks are more important than dividends as a way for companies to use their operating earnings to benefit shareholders. And they have been every quarter since 2010. Uh, Something like 58% of operating earnings in the last short while have gone towards buybacks. And again, what we're talking about here is companies going into the open market and buying their own shares. Well, and I feel like when a company announces it, think about it. So many times after the closing bell, we're reporting it in our daily show and immediately you see the stock kick up in the after hours. And remind us of the mechanics of it again and sort of what what the effect of a buyback is. Well, what it does is uh, removes shares from the market so that there's fewer outstanding shares Operating earnings haven't changed, so the earnings per share go up, and that uh, can be attractive to investors. And it's what, right. It's why investors like it. There's a lot of debate, though, about are, is that the best use of a company's money versus maybe right. investing in R&D right. or investing in their workers and right. so, so on. Right. So, again, a new plant yeah. or whatever. So, there are sort of two general criticisms of buybacks. The one you hear about a lot is exactly what you're saying here, that companies should be doing other things with their money. It's like, don't you have anything better to do with your money than just buy back your own shares? Don't you have a plant you ought to be building, some invention you ought to be making? And Or why don't you just pay your employees more? And so the liberal Democrats are very much on this theme, including two of our leading presidential candidates, so Senators Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, have signed on to legislation that would actually prohibit companies from buying back their own shares. So that's out there, kind of a known criticism. I'm not focusing on that. There, I'll just say one thing, though, is that there is a response to that. Um, the people will say, uh, you know, companies can really do bad things with their money. Yeah. You know, sometimes it's better to take it out, away from the management, give it back to the shareholders, and let them deploy that money as they see fit, perhaps into fast-growing startups that need money more than some old cash cow. Because as you say, one of the benefits of this is that earnings per share go up. And, yeah. and that is ultimately what people are investing right. in sure. is a company's future earnings. Sure. So, but, th- but again, that's not the focus of the story. The focus is on this other thing which has gotten less attention, which is what executives do when there's a buyback. And Robert Jackson is one of the commissioners of the SEC, not the chairman. He has uh, commissioned his own staff to look into this. And what he found is that, as Carol said before, 
Stocks tend to go up when a buyback is announced. It's an expression of confidence by management in the future of a company, right? So it's no wonder the stock goes up a bit. But uh, what do executives do? They are more likely to sell their shares in the immediate aftermath of this buyback announcement, taking advantage of that pop in the stock. So if you're a real cynic, you would say this is sort of a legal version of sort of an illegal uh, pump and dump stock up manipulation. Right, right. So this is insiders, usually senior corporate executives, right? Yeah, and directors. That are taking yeah. advantage. So we're, so there's been research out there that's showing that the insiders yeah, that, are selling right after the announcement right. of a buyback. The, the, there's always a steady dribble of selling by executives, right. you know, they're cashing in the stock options on. But what you see is a big jump, like – Five-fold increase in the dollar value of the stock sales right after, in eight days after a buyback announcement versus before. And the number of executives doing so is also up. So what does Jackson want to do about this? He has a very narrow, tailored solution, which seems kind of unobjectionable, which is to bar executives and directors, other insiders, from selling in the immediate aftermath of a buyback. Right. He doesn't say exactly how many days that should be, but mm-hmm. as he says, you know, who thinks it's a good idea for executives to be doing this right after buyback is announced? Who who benefits from that except for those people? Because right, there are clear. already restrictions, right, on when insiders can buy and sell shares. Yeah, and so this would be a, creating a new thing yeah. that they would not be allowed to do. How likely is Mr. Jackson's change to be implemented. Well, I mean, I think what he's betting on is that articles in the press like this one, Washington Post had a, a story on this recently, will start to generate some uh, interest in this in the general public. So far, the chairman of the SEC, Jay Clayton, has not gone along with this. He was asked about it by Senator Chris Van Hollen last year mm-hmm. and kind of demurred. He, you know, well, I'm still willing to talk about this. I don't want to have a big roundtable about it. But, you know, he's uh, susceptible to political pressure just like anybody else. And if the pressure amounts, you know, the rule could change. And it comes at an interesting moment, right, where Mm -hmm. people are asking bigger and candidly more complicated questions about who's got what at stake. Are executives really doing things in a holistic way that benefit everyone? Or is there just enrichment going on uh, to their own benefit? Precisely. So. I mean, it seems to me like uh, a worthy topic that Robert Jackson has brought up. Yeah, I I agree with you. I was thinking about that, just this greater uh, emphasis on either governance issues, Mm -hmm. all of the stakeholders involved. And I think, you know, I think this is going to be something that people will be looking at more Mm -hmm. closely. Hey, I do want to ask you, since we've got you, the issue about the Bloomberg 50. And you nominated somebody and interviewed somebody for the list. Gita Gopinath mm-hmm. is the chief economist of the International Monetary Fund in Washington. She was raised in India, um, first woman to have the job as research director, chief economist of the IMF. She's a Harvard professor, has been since 2005, got her PhD at Princeton. Uh, one of her advisors was Ben Bernanke. So she's got uh, straight <laughs> she's got pedigree. <laughs> oh, she's super smart. And she's been doing stuff, too. She's just finishing her first year in the job. And she's she's not slowing down. I mean, she, she dove right into some pretty serious issues. Well, and one of her main areas of interest is around the dollar yeah. and its sort of role in right. the world. Tell us about that. Yeah, this is probably one of her key uh, research projects going back to before she joined the IMF. So the quick, quick version is that Lots of transactions in international commerce are denominated in dollars, even when neither the buying nor the selling nation uses the dollars or some other country. Um, So oil, for example, is priced in dollars. So there's a downside to that. If you're a fragile, um, say, emerging market country and your products are priced in dollars or you're buying stuff in dollars, then – your currency goes down. Suddenly, imports become more expensive, right? Mm-hmm. That's what happens. Right. But your exports, because they're priced in dollars, don't change in price. They're, you know, they're just dollars you're getting. So you, you get hit on one end without any benefit on the other. And uh, it's, it can be a real squeeze on some of these vulnerable countries. And like Peru and Brazil, among other countries, have gotten hit by this. So she's not uh, 
out there advocating for any particular policy because mm-hmm. that's not her job. She's a research person, but it, it is interesting that she's pinpointed uh, a real vulnerability. This oh, the the dominance of the dollar creates. Well, and I think what's also interesting, especially in a year where we've been so focused on the U.S.-China trade war, some of the research she did about who really, you know, bears the cost right. of higher tariffs, yes. if you will, on Chinese imports. And that that cost is being borne by U.S. consumers and importers. Now, that's almost become a commonplace in recent months yeah. because other people have duplicated that research and found the same thing, but the IMF was fairly early in making that point. Well, and she is an appointee, or she was put in this job by Christine Lagarde, who obviously... Well, Christine Lagarde, you know, recommended her for the job, and she got approved, and Christine Lagarde, of course, has moved on. She's... uh, But Lagarde obviously had faith in her as being the kind of person who could handle... A job like that. I love, too, that part of her job she sees is kind of increasing the number of women who are economists and high-profile sure. positions. I mean, she sounds the like she's on a mission, is a too. profession is one where uh, women have not gotten their fair share. And uh, it's pretty clear that Janet Yellen and others have taken this on as a cause. And so she's, she's one of the people who says, Man, you hope I become a role model for young women who might consider entering the profession. That's our economics editor, Peter Coy. I'm so glad we were able to talk to him about a couple of things. Of course, that very important story about stock buybacks. We talk about it all the time here at Bloomberg. There's definitely arguments to be made for doing them and for not necessarily doing them. So I think it's important that we talked about that. And then, of course. Well, and, you know, looking at one of the most influential economists out there, you know, someone who's really setting a different sort of tone, a designee in some ways of Christine Lagarde. Mm -hmm. So you do wonder whether not just the tone of economics, but the look of economics may be changing. Uh, Long overdue. Jason, she was the IMF's first female chief economist. And of course, she's part of the Bloomberg 50, uh, a great list of people. We on Monday are going to be at the Bloomberg 50 event. We're going to be at the red carpet doing a live radio broadcast, speaking to many of the folks that are on that list. That's right. We'll be live 6 p.m. Wall Street time here in New York City. And if you don't catch us live, check out next weekend's show. We're going to have the best of those interviews. Well, that's going to wrap up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Be sure to tune into Bloomberg Business Week Radio live Monday through Friday starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. And if you can't catch us live, check out our daily podcast. You can get that at Bloomberg.com or wherever you get your podcast. And of course, you can get this week's edition of the magazine. It is on newsstands now. We'll be back right here next week at the same time. This is Bloomberg.